Hello everyone, this is Mirko Guerrini and I welcome you to the Jazz Transcription Clinic, a monthly interviews podcast where we talk with accomplished jazz doctors about their lives, career and their personal secrets on the art of transcribing. If you want to improve at jazz, stay tuned and follow the Jazz Transcription Clinic on the socials for more content. I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is being recorded. I pay my respects to their elders, past and present, and the Aboriginal elders of other communities who may be here today. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Jazz Transcription Clinic podcast. Today the guest doctor is the one and only Paul Grabowski from Melbourne, Australia. Good, uh, good afternoon, Paul, and thanks for being with us. Great to be here, Mick. Thanks for having me. Uh, Paul is one of the first Australian musicians I have ever heard. So my first time in Melbourne was back in 2005, playing with Stefano Bollani for the Melbourne International Jazz Festival, and we shared a gig. Uh, it was a double bill gig at the festival, and I think we played before your sextet, Paul, that night. No, I think you, I think you played after. Oh, okay. So, yeah. as you see, my memory has already... At the forum, it was. At the forum. And I remember I was really, really impressed by your playing and also the music that uh, you were writing at the time. It was so innovative and so full of new ideas. And years later, when I moved to Melbourne, I, I met with Paul again, and I was lucky enough that he uh, wanted, he called me to uh, play in a gig with a, a, a Sydney-based singer called Virna Sanzone and the great Nico Schäuble. And after some other uh, events and histories that we had together, uh, now we are happy members of a band called Torio, uh, which is a trio with Paul, uh, Nico Schäuble and myself. Uh, I always, uh, when I listen to Paul playing, even if, if I'm not playing with him, I'm always impressed and um, struck by the knowledge of the keyboard and the knowledge of the mechanic of music that Paul is able to convey in a very passionate and meaningful way. So um, I will put all the descriptions of the links and websites where you can listen to Paul's music and when you can buy uh, Paul's music in the podcast description. But uh, let's start with some questions. So today, of course, we will be talking about jazz transcription and hopefully we will provide some new angles and perspectives on this uh, activity that we love doing. So the first question for you, Paul, is why you do transcribe and why you do it. Well, I learned to transcribe because um, it was the only way that I could start to learn how to play jazz. It's like cracking a code, really, jazz music. Um, 
And, you know, there is a through line in jazz which starts right at the very beginning of the music from New Orleans around the turn of the 20th century. But, um, you know, I, I think the, the foundation of the way most modern jazz is constructed really starts with the, um, the bebop era. And there are some really key people who sort of created the language which then went on to influence generations who either imitated it or responded to it in various ways. So, you know, I came out of a very uh, deep classical um, music education and by the time that I really had caught what I call the jazz bug, when it, the jazz bug bit me and that's all I really wanted to do, I, I needed to find advice because at the time in the 1970s in Melbourne, you could not study jazz. There was nowhere to go to study jazz. So I had to rely on certain individuals. And just purely by coincidence, really, um, I met a double bass player called Gary Costello, who um, we, we, you know, we played a lot together until he, he died very young, unfortunately. Um, but Gary was a student of uh, a double bassist called Murray Wall. And Murray Wall was a student of Lenny Tristano. Wow. Uh, so there were a couple of people, Murray Wall and a guitarist called Steve Gunther, who lived in Melbourne, who had both studied with Lenny. And I got to hang out with those guys a lot. And there was this whole little scene in Melbourne built around... Lenny Tristano's jazz pedagogy. And, you know, that's a very hardcore kind of pathway, but very useful for me because the kind of um, the ideological basis of it, and I sort of needed that sense of restriction in order to know where to start. And so they talked about Charlie Parker, Lester Young, Roy Aldridge, uh, you know, Billy Holiday, Louis Armstrong too, Bud Powell, um, and of course, you know, Lenny himself. And, and hearing Lenny Tristano in those days, it was like Samizdat. You know, it was like flying under the radar, underground political poetry or something that uh, was really hard to get your hands on. And if anybody had a cassette of Lenny Tristano playing, it was like you know, handed from person to person until the tape was worn out. Yeah. Um, but Charlie Parker, at least you could buy the records. And once I heard Charlie Parker, you know, I fell in love with Charlie Parker. I'm still in love with Charlie Parker. But there's something about Charlie Parker's music which is irresistible. And although Charlie Parker wasn't the first person I transcribed, he was the first musician that I transcribed a lot of. And um, and then, you know, it's only one step from Charlie Parker to Bud Powell. I mean, the language of the two of them is quite similar. And as a pianist, when I heard Bud Powell, it was, like, unbelievable to me. I couldn't quite wrap my head around the fact that somebody could make the piano sound like that. And, uh, you know, again, I, I started to work on Bud Powell, and, and I kept on working on Bud Powell solos for quite a few years. Bud Powell was sort of a real passion of mine. So, 
you know, the very first solo I transcribed was a strange one. It was a Winton Kelly piano solo from a tune that nobody plays, I think, called Little Old Lady. It's on uh, Coltrane Jazz. Mm. And it's a <clears throat> you may remember it. It's it's got an incredibly long form. I think it's an Irving Berlin song. I can't quite remember who wrote the song, but it's in lots of different sections. Uh, eight bar, eight bar, eight bar, eight bar. And I think Winton does a sixteen bar solo on it. I think that's all he plays. I did it because. Um, it's, it's not this recording that you were talking about. No. No, no, no. No. It's, um, have I got the right album? Maybe I've got the wrong album. Okay. I don't know. It's around, it's, it's, it's one of the Atlantic albums. I'm pretty sure of that. Yeah. All right. Anyway. Maybe I've got the wrong tune. I'm, I'm trying to dredge this up from the... No, it doesn't matter. It's just because I, I like to put the reference in the, in the description of the tracks that we talk about. So maybe we will double check uh, afterwards. Okay. If I've got it wrong, then you know, people can write me nasty letters and say... <laughs> no, they won't. Um, anyway, look, this, this particular little Winton Kelly solo, it was short... And it's not too difficult, and I kind of could understand how what he was playing related to the harmonies of the song. But also, for something about Winton Kelly, which was really important for me at that point, was just to feel what it felt like to play those notes in that way. So one of the things that I always did after I transcribed something was played along with the recording and tried to match the articulation and the phrasing uh, and the time feeling at the instrument, whether I was playing along with, with Bird or Bud Powell. Um, you know, just it's really important, I think, not just to get the notes, to understand the notes, but to understand what it feels like to play the notes. Yeah. This is the you know, and the psychology of it. I think this is becoming a constant factor here in this podcast that everyone is talking about, you know, go beyond the pitch and try to yeah. get, you know, the full dress of that note yeah. and try to become, you know, that dress. Uh, so and am you know, I... it's, it's, uh, just want to make one point. It's, it's very important to transcribe things that are not on your instrument. Because that way you're not always locked into the world of playing, in my case, playing the piano. So in that early period of transcribing, I also transcribed Fats Navarro solos um, and George Coleman solos. Wow. You know, I really wanted to learn, I wanted to learn how to play fast too. And Bud Powell, of course, you know, something like Bud Powell's uh, recording of Cherokee is a great example of that super quick tempo just to, to get the, to also learn what that felt like how do you negotiate that tempo uh, may i ask you paul uh, you were classically trained first before you mm. got the the bug the jazz bug mm. right so you had a 
very good understanding, I imagine, of, of music and piano music, especially. So uh, did the transcribing process help you to find the different sounds on the keyboard? Well, yeah, I mean, um, you know, playing classical music teaches you to play a certain way. And because I started very young um, and I had a really wonderful piano teacher, uh, I got, you know, really good facility at the piano. Um, but also, he, he, my teacher, Mac Yost, he was really big on sound. And um, he talked a lot about, you know, making the piano sing and dynamics. And, you know, that's really, classical music is full of that. In, in classical music, you really do learn how to play pianissimo or pianissimo and fortissimo and, and all of the gradations in between those things. But the constant line through that is the sound that you make. It's essentially the same sound, but a really good sound can be very soft or it can be, you know, loud. I mean, you're a very good example of that. You can play the saxophone very, very softly and there are a lot of jazz musicians who don't really know how to do that. I mean, their idea of piano is somebody else's mezzo forte. So um, the thing about jazz is that, you know, jazz is all about a, two things about jazz piano, which are very different from classical piano. One is, is where you play the notes in, in terms of the pulse. So the phrasing in jazz and the syncopation of jazz and, and where you put accents in a line, that they are very specific to, I think, to jazz music and the way that jazz rolls out. Um, but I don't think my sound changed. I mean, I think that... <laughs> I remember years after I stopped learning from Mac Yost, I went back to see him because I was going to perform a Bach keyboard concerto, the D minor concerto. And I thought, oh, I should go back to Mac because he was a real Bach aficionado and uh, I should play this for him and get him to critique me. And he was very nice about it and he said, you know, I can see that you've been playing a lot of jazz because, you, you're, you know, you're playing really into the key and you don't need to play into the key all the time. Hmm. Um, you know, you can, you can afford just to be a little, to back off a bit. And I really, you know, recognise that the reason why I was playing into the key was because that's what you do when you're playing jazz. Because the piano is uh, compromised very often in a jazz situation if the band is, is too loud. So you have to kind of compensate. But, you know, you learn uh, also to be able to play clearly and loud enough that, that everything that you're doing is audible without smashing the piano. And this is, you know, what I try and tell young players uh, who, are, who are trying to get into the music, that you don't have to, you know, you don't have to really smack the piano with every note that you play in order for the music to, to be conveyed. You need to learn how to use your body and use your weight, not in finger stroke, yeah. but in the way that you produce sound from your solar plexus. Yeah. 
And I think I, well, that's you know, no different from any other instrument, really. Yes, there is a yeah a lot of a lot of science there. But I remember myself as I started with the piano, and my first teacher never uh, spoke to me about you know how to use your even your arm weight on the on the keyboard. And I was I remember I was getting some tendinitis, especially in these two fingers. I'm left-handed, so the the right hand, you know, especially on fast passages, ah, I was getting you know a lot of pain, and some days I couldn't play at all. And then my my teacher at that time fell sick, and the replacement that was sent uh, just taught me, I don't know, two or three lessons and she changed my life completely because she taught me, you know, how to watch your knuckle here and it should come up because you are not using the muscles of the finger but, you know, the, the weight of the arm and the shoulder and your body to produce the sound and I could, you know, double my volume with half the effort. Right. So, yeah, it's, it's funny how... You know, sometimes just the chance interferes with your life and makes a positive change. So that that was yeah, was really great. Uh, to going back to the our topic, uh, Paul, how are you choosing the solos you transcribe? Because uh, you know, sometimes it's just you hear something that you uh, like and you say, "Oh, I want to do that," or some. Sometimes you want to study a specific uh, tool that you want to explore. So how you choose the material? Well, as I was saying before, I mean, very specific problems uh, or, you know, the urge to understand why something sounds the way it does. Um, one of the... Early solos that I transcribed was Charlie Parker, Bird of Paradise. Because, you know, with hanging out with these Lenny Tristano guys, they all were playing, you know, very standard material. But one of the mainstays of that was All the Things You Are. And they regarded yeah. that as a really important song because it went through a number of different keys. Um, and, you know, if you could improvise effectively over that structure, you were probably on the right pathway. So, you know, learning that classic Charlie Parker solo um, taught me a lot. I mean, I still think it's one of the great masterpieces of of, of the jazz literature, really. Um, I talked about, you know, learning to play fast by studying Bud Powell and and, and learning just how to be able to create and you know how how to roll out ideas, how, how you get a succession of ideas, and the momentum uh, that that conveys, or how the momentum creates its own kind of logic at that tempo. Another one um, was uh, Herbie Hancock's solo on Four from Four and More. Again, very 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 up tempo, and in fact, it's so fast that it's. At there's a point in the middle of it where, you know, the rhythm section are kind of finding themselves again. Um, but, yeah, again, you know, incredible construction, 
And Herbie's a great example of a pianist who is, manages to play with a very beautiful sound, regardless of what the tempo is or, you know, what the dynamics of the band are. It's this beautiful crystalline sort of sound, rich sound that he makes. So incredible technique. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's basically more the need of something. It's like you are looking for a medicine to cure a particular uh, thing that is afflicting you in, in that particular time of, of well, your no, musical really. journey? No, no, I wouldn't call it that. Um, because sometimes it's just because something sounds so interesting. It's more that I have a curiosity about it than an affliction. I'm, I feel like I'm cutting through a jungle towards some city made of gold. And, uh, <laughs> you know, that's that, that every time I was doing it, there was a sense of wonder about, wow, how that's incredible. How did, how did that person think of that? Like Paul Blay, um, his solo on When Will the Blues Leave on Footloose is a great example of that. You know, a blues, but is it a blues? <laughs> he ends up going, you know, sort of taking it to a completely different tonality. Um, Ornette, you know, when I finally, you know, got the courage to, to transcribe Ornette, I realised that you couldn't just transcribe Ornette um, because Ornette's music is inconceivable without you understanding what the relationships are in the music. So... I transcribed uh, his solo on Peace, but I also transcribed Charlie Hayden's bass line so that I could see how those two things were working together. You know, that's very important in Ornette's music. The, the music is relational always. Um, so, yeah, yeah. There, are, there are many different things to, to take into account. And as you can see, it wasn't all about learning how to play the piano. I kind yeah. of knew how to play the piano, but it was more about how to, you know, learning about music. How is this music constructed? And the more I did it, the more I learned. And then that information would inform a lot of other things that I was doing. It would inform decisions I would make as a composer. Because I, you know, for especially the stuff about relational uh, things in music that... It was the relationship between pitches, which is really the interesting thing, not not the fact that they belong to a particular chord scale or something like that. In, in fact, that's never really interested me. That kind of way of looking at jazz, I've never been into it. You know, chord scales and all that stuff. I know that they exist and I understand that they're a useful way of conveying information, but I've never been attracted to thinking in those terms about altered dominance and all that stuff. Yeah. I'm more interested in, you know, chains of thirds. That's, that's for me, very interesting. Mm. Uh, I think one, one key, at least for me, is that I'm interested in how those things work, why a triton substitution works, but I first try to get the sound of those those things and then once I learn the sound of it first I understand better but also I can decide whether I like it or not 
And I'm not using it just because it's cool to use, you know, a difficult or a very intellectual uh, process, but I'm using it because I like the sound of it. So, and I know exactly how it sounds, how that rule sounds. So if I feel the need of that sound, I can recall the rule. So it's, it's a sort of inverted process. I'm not yeah, interested in the rule itself, but in understanding why it sounds so great or not so great, mm. you know, mm. in, in that case. Sure. Uh, yeah, that's great. So to go a little bit deeper into the actual process and into a practical uh, side of it, uh, can you elaborate a little bit how you, um, what methodology do you, uh, do you apply when you transcribe? Do you uh, slow down using a software? Probably you don't need to, but uh, can you just tell us what's your process? <laughs> when I started, I did it on cassette, and I had a cassette player which only had fast forward, no rewind. <laughs> so I had to turn the cassette to the other side and press fast forward in order to be able to hear something the, you know, the next time and the next time and the next time. So that laborious method of having to learn things that way really made things go into my brain, you know. And also you had to listen very carefully. Because <laughs> very carefully and many, many, many times. So... Um, Were you, you using know, one of these to rewind? Sometimes. Sometimes, yeah. Yep, yeah. definitely. Uh, so, you know, that, that compared to what's available now where you can just slow things down or, or you know, it, I mean, the tools that are available to a person now make things much easier. And these days, you know, I don't really do much transcription, um, mainly because I'm, I'm, you know, involved in doing other things. Um, I do a lot of composing these days, so, um, the you know, the time that I have available to me, I have mostly to spend it doing other stuff. But every now and again I do uh, listen to something and, and figure it out. But for now, the way that I'm situated at the moment, I will just – I don't ever slow things down. I listen to them until I've grasped what's going on and then I figure it out at the piano, have a look at it, consider it, uh-huh, okay, I get that, and then move on to the next thing. I mean, there are – so many wonderful things that are available to transcribe now. If I had time on my hands and I was starting again, there's a lot about, you know, about Stefano's playing that I, I, I'm fascinated by or um, you know, Brad Meldow, um, uh, Keith Jarrett, you know, continues to be a source of incredible fascination for me. Yeah. Particularly, you know, his harmonic improvisations, the, the way that he uses extended harmony and you know, what I would describe as something which is close to atonal harmony um, or very, very complex tonality, to, uh, and, and which he does by inner voice leading often. Um, there's a great uh, you know, rigour and structure to, to a lot of what he does, which I find very, very satisfying to listen to and, and something that 
I would love to know more about. But, you know, that's the methodology for me. It's it's just learning to listen, uh, learning to hear intervals correctly, uh, or listen to the the structures of a chord vertically. So as a pianist, you, you've got to learn to listen vertically and horizontally, and to be able to bring those two things into some kind of um, meaningful relationship. And uh, back in those days where you uh, started transcribing and you were uh, diving into, you know, those legends like Bud Powell, Herbie Hancock, um, were you transcribing whole solos or parts of it or the whole track, for example? Yeah, no, whole solos. Definitely. Uh, I mentioned George Coleman earlier, so I did George Coleman's solo on four and then also Herbie Hancock's. Wow. I never transcribed George Coleman, but it must be quite difficult, you know, thinking of his playing, especially rhythmically. He can be very challenging. Well, he's sort of... He, he for me, is like the Mozart of hard bop. (laughs) I like that. It's perfect. His, his, there is not a single note which is out of place. The construction of his solos are absolutely beautiful. Not as challenging as Wayne Shorter, who is really kind of exploring some very unusual um, and you know, conceptually quite... Uh, there's a word in English, arch. You know, he's kind of he does things which are very much about a combination of sound and pitch, which which really put him in a very different kind of relationship, often to the harmonic structure of a song, than somebody like George Coleman, who you would consider to be an inside player, and you can see that he's really thinking about the harmonic substitutions that he can perform on a particular set of chord changes. So it's a different philosophy, really, of playing between those two people. But yeah. really, I've got a little mastery that uh, it just makes sense to me. And probably that, that's also the reason why uh, there are not many transcription books of those two guys, because it's, it's right. very challenging. And then the, the concept is behind the notes, it's, it's so beyond the notes that even when you put it on paper, I mean, if you transcribe a, a recent Wayne Shorter solo, he wouldn't probably pass a blind audition to get in into a university. Well, that's right? the interesting thing. That's what I mean about Wayne being about, it's as much about sound as it is about pitch. Yeah. yeah. Because he can play one note. Yes. And it's got, it carries so much authority that you think, well, you don't need to play another note now. <laughs> yes. You know, and, and he's like Miles in that regard. Miles could play one note and all of a sudden all of the energy of the music gets drawn to that one note. The entire band, yeah. everything about the music is sucked into like, like a, some sort of magnetic field by that one note. And Wayne has that same capacity. And it's funny because, you know, to transcribe that one note that Wayne Shorter plays takes you probably 20 seconds. 
But to play that note in the way he does takes you probably 20 years, <laughs> right? So Possibly, you know, because, you know, there's not just a pitch in that note. And it's no. and you know, it's about well, what is sound? What does sound really mean when we're talking about your sound? We're talking about your life. What what goes into the production of a sound is the entire life story of the person. It's yeah. like every breath that person has ever taken, every word that he's ever spoken, every experience that he's ever had is in that one single note yes. and in every other note that they play. So that's why, you know, transcription can teach you a certain amount of things. But the key to unlocking the why of the decisions that the person has made that you're transcribing, that is impossible to unlock. And should, you shouldn't pretend that you can unlock that because you are not that person. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that's that's true. I do agree hundred percent with this. I remember the first time I put on the CD player Travelog the Johnny Mitchell double album <clears throat> with beautiful arrangements by Vince Mendoza and you know the the symphony orchestra. He plays a solo. Wayne Shorter plays a solo uh, where the orchestra is doing. Like all, you know, a whole palette of colors with a beautiful orchestrated, you know, and painted by Vince Mendoza. And when Shorter is playing an arpeggio over a major triad. And the, yeah. first, the first reaction when I, when I first heard it was, is when Poole does a leg? Like, is he kidding? Is he like having fun of us? It's a beautiful solo. What, that's but on then, um, Come To Me? Uh, yeah, probably. I can't remember. I have to find it again. But after repeated listening, you know, I was drawn into the beauty of that thing. And it's yeah. exactly what you said. You know, this is a, you know, triad arpeggio. And it's so beautiful that I can't imagine anything else. Yeah. Now, you know, so that, that's almost magic. And it's something that you can transcribe, you can try to learn. You will never come up with that idea because we are not him. Uh, you're right. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, Wayne overdubbed all of those solos. Um, and um, that's the thing. Yeah, he's, he's bringing his Wayne shorterness into the studio and his being Wayne Shorter over that music. Yeah. And that's right. That's exactly right. It's, it's not the same as what I was saying before where you're in a, he's in the band and he's playing the one note. I mean, I have really witnessed that. When, uh, when the quartet came to the Adelaide Festival years ago, you know, they were, the, the, the trio, the amazing trio were playing uh, and, you know, they were playing for quite a long time. And this incredible interplay that they've gotten reading each other's minds and, you know, these sort of supreme intellects and technical virtuosos really going for it. And Wayne is just standing there, you know. Yeah. It's, it felt like for a, for a very long time. And then finally he did just play one note, right? 
And you do that thing where the music just went like that. The music disappeared into that yeah. one note. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, everything was different. And is it a coincidence that the Wayne Shorter Quartet was playing at that edition of the Melbourne Jazz Festival in 2005? I remember... Uh, no, that was, that was with Jason Moran, actually, I think, uh, on that tour. But there no, was, this was the was... festival that I did in 2012. Yeah, but I remember in 2005, uh, when I was playing at the festival, uh, I remember, you know, having breakfast at the next table with John Petitucci and and when shorter, so they were playing at oh. that. Oh yeah, no, they, they, as well. they could. Have been. Yeah. But I don't think that um, Danilo Perez was was he, the I don't pianist. think he was there. Yeah. Oh, he was, was he? Okay, because they did play uh, one. I, I can't remember. James. I think. It, I think he was, but I'm not sure now. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, no, that, that, that's that's great. Uh, do you do you practice what you transcribe, Paul? Do you? Well, I used to. Yeah, that was my practice routine. I mean, there was a period in my life where I was practicing like eight hours a day, and that would be you know transcription first. Or maybe technical stuff first and then transcription and then practicing the transcription over and over and over and learning them, of course, from memory. Um, another one that I spent a lot of time on was um, Line Up by Lenny Tristano, which is on um, All of Me uh, from the album called Lenny Tristano, which yeah. is, you know, there's, there's a lot of stories about that solo. That, 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 that is also supposed to have been overdubbed, although I don't quite see how that was possible because it's played in the tenor register on the piano. So that, that alone is very unusual. Where it is placed, its tessitura is very unusual for the piano. And in order for it to have been... It couldn't have been slowed down because the, the tempo is too fast. You know, it's, that's the tempo. So if you had slowed it down from, you know, an upper octave, it would be some ridiculous sort yeah. of Mickey Mouse tempo. So uh, it sounds to me like he actually played it exactly where, where it is. So um, this thing about it being very speeded, who knows? I mean, he did experiment. Uh, in the recording situation in ways which were way ahead of their time. He did multiple overdubs and all sorts of stuff that no one was doing in the late 50s. But um, that is an incredible solo, my God. And then there's, you know, um, some of the stuff from the new Tristano, the uh, um, minor, C minor connotation, is it? One on Pennies from Heaven in minor, which is a, a walking bass line, left hand and simultaneous right hand improvisation. It's it's unbelievable. So those things, you know, I occupied a lot of my time trying to get my head around that stuff. Yeah. Um, they would be the most difficult ones that I've grappled with over the years, I think. And... <clears throat> You know, one thing that 
sometimes, especially students, come back uh, when you encourage them to transcribe is that, oh, but I, I don't want to copy anyone. I don't want to become a copy of someone. So have you ever felt that way, Paul? Or what can you say to those objections? Well, I'll tell you a little story in order to answer that question, I think. I love it already. <laughs> when I was around about 27 years old, um, or 26, I was about to make my very first album. I was living in Germany, in Munich, and um, my trio was about to record for the very first time. It was 1985, so yes, I must have been 26 going on 27. And um, in order to prepare for that recording session, I was recording a lot of the gigs that we had been doing and listening back to them. And I was becoming more and more depressed about this whole project because I thought I didn't sound in any way like I wanted to sound. What I was not hearing or what I was unhappy about was that I didn't sound like the people that I admired as being these great heroes of mine. I didn't sound like Herbie Hancock. I didn't sound like Chick or Bud Powell or, you know, whatever it was that uh, I was ostensibly aiming to be. And... One day the penny dropped because I was hearing the same sorts of things that I thought were mistakes or odd choices over and over again until I realised, wait a minute, maybe that's, that's the me-ness of me that I'm hearing. That this odd thing, this idiosyncrasy, is actually me being myself. Maybe it would be better for me to embrace that to own it, to feel that that is a true representation of who I am, than to fight against it. Because that's a neurosis. You know, that's a kind of an inferiority complex that you'll just carry with you from gig to gig to gig, situation to situation. If you don't go, well, wait a minute, no, that's, this is who I am. I'm going to own this. I'm going to work with it, work around it, use it as a basis and, you know, run with it, walk small. And um, this is a very important lesson. So regard, um, relating it now to your question, now, I don't want to transcribe something because I don't want to sound like somebody else. You're not ever going to sound like somebody else because you're not the other person. So I wouldn't be worrying about that too much. And the other thing is, Mirko, I, I use this phrase sometimes, music never lies. You can tell a lot about who the person is that you're listening to from the way they're playing. You can tell from Wayne Shorter's playing that he's a very interesting, thoughtful, deep, poetic individual, that there's something about him which is way outside of just music, that he's thought about many, many things to be able to arrive at these decisions. Ornette Coleman, who I had the good fortune to spend a bit of, you know, I had long chats to Ornette Coleman. 
And I figured out that, you know, the way he plays is an absolute reflection of the person that you're talking to. That really weird answer to the question that I just asked him, that's, you know, if I now would I listen to his music, I'd go, yeah, I really understand. I, I know that you are true. Every note is true. But it's also true of somebody who spends their entire life trying to sound like somebody else. You know, saxophone players who try and sound like Coltrane, what does that tell you about that person? <laughs> they might be brilliant, you know. They might be very close to sounding like Coltrane, but they're not Coltrane. Yeah. You know, they've spent their whole life modelling everything that they do in somebody else's footsteps. Now, that's the decision that they've made. That's fine. Nobody can take that away from them. But the question then to ask the student is why... Why do you think that? Why do you think that? What is it about the situation which makes you think that this is really, that, that that's the question you should be asking? Yeah. So oh, how... Oh, a, no, that's the wrong, the wrong question. The question that you should be asking yourself is what is the person playing that's, that's interesting for me and how can I incorporate that into my own story, the story of me. And that was exactly the next question. How do you incorporate those ideas into your playing? Well, you know, you... Um, every time we play a solo, Mirko, we're, we are telling a story. And a story needs to have a beginning and a and a development and, you know, some kind of, of ending. And it's that shape that you need to be aware of and cognizant of. Even if it's only a very short solo, you know, you want to make sure that it's just not a flurry of notes that have no real meaning beyond them being the right notes on the chord or something. You've got to think structurally about how to do those things. So... All of the componentry that you learn, all of the little bits that you've picked up from all of the sort of information that you've absorbed over the years, that goes into those decisions that you make. But often the decisions um, are not necessarily about the right note or the wrong note to play anymore. I think at some point you've got to forget about that stuff and just think about what your job is as a musician. And that's, you know, we are telling stories. We're not telling people what the right note is to play on a chord. I don't want my audience to go, oh, there's an F natural on a F sharp minor. So that's the natural, that's the raised seven on a minor chord. Yeah. I don't want them to do that, even if they know that that's what it is. I mean, what a terrible thing that would be if all they're doing is, you know, running a, some sort of uh, analysis of what I'm playing while I'm playing it. I want them to feel something emotional. I want them to have an emotional connection yeah. to what I'm doing. And has it ever happened to you that you listen to some recordings of other people and you recognize something that maybe in the past you have worked on and you recognize, oh, I, I like doing that and, and you can relink the origin 
of something that is in your vocabulary now. Uh, I probably can can rephrase the question. It happened. Yeah, it happened to me that, for example, sometimes I hear a recording of myself, and then after a short period of time, I hear a recording of I don't know Stan Gates, and I hear Stan Gates playing my lines, and of course it's the other way around, but. When I'm playing those lines, I'm no more conscious of the origin of those lines. So they have mm. been processed and digested into my system. Okay. And then they are reproduced as genuine in that moment. That's interesting. I, I once heard Joe Lovano at a um, masterclass talk about his process and how he's always conjuring up great figures from the literature and the legacy of jazz. And so he'll, he'll, he's playing and then he's thinking, ah, Eric Dolphy. And then all of a sudden he's playing something up in the altissimo or some, you know, weird uh, interval leaps and stuff. It doesn't sound anything like Eric Dolphy, actually, but, <laughs> but it's the way that he's processing that information. And I think that... Um, I mean, I, I never really think, oh, I'm going to sound like this person or that person. You know, now I'm going to sound like Bill Evans or now I'm going to sound like, um, you know, McCoy Tyner or... Yeah. Um, or, or, or Herbie Hancock. It's, it's more that just certain gestures will come out in your playing. And don't forget, jazz is very gestural. That's a word where I have conversation, but I think the, the gestural nature of it, the, the kind of... Um, the uh, choreography of jazz is also a very important thing to bear in mind. And that all of these things that we've exposed ourselves to will filter through in the way that we play. I mean, you've remarked about some of the things that I've done when we've played in the trio, that it reminds you of, you know, Alban Berg or, or somebody like that. And that may also well be true because these are also equally influences that have, have uh, informed some of the stuff that I might choose to do. You know, it's stuff that comes not out of the jazz literature at all, really, but comes from somewhere else. So um, I, I'm not sure that I'm really answering the question properly, but uh, I think you we, absorb, we absorb things and we, we they come out of us in different kinds of ways. Yeah. And... Sure, you might listen to a recording of yourself and go, okay, I recognise what that is. I mean, I tell you, Mirko, for me it's much, much more amusing is I have, the, you know, I have a student, well, he's not a student of mine anymore, he's, he's really, he's something. But, um, you know, Aaron Chulai is a, a wonderful musician, pianist, uh, and record producer who lives in Tokyo now. Um, and Aaron first came to me when he was 13 years old to learn how to play jazz piano. And already then he was a really established blues guitarist at the age of 13. And he came to me and, he, you know, he was very... Uh, like a 13-year-old boy, he was, you know, didn't really know what to say and his voice was breaking and it was there was a certain awkwardness. 
And I, I remember I gave him Charlie Parker to, to listen to, and I said, look, this is, you know, you love the blues. This is what the blues sounds like in the, in the hands of somebody who's taken it to the next level. Um, so he came back to see me a couple of years later, and meanwhile he had also got hold of a couple of my recordings and he had absorbed my recordings almost like he'd eaten them whole. Or it was like something being born out of the head of Zeus, you know? <laughs> he, uh, and something came fully formed out of his head and he was playing the piano and it sounded like me. And it got more and more and more like that to the point where now when I hear him play, I'm hearing a version of myself but in filtered through somebody else, right? And that's really, I mean, it's interesting. It's kind of sometimes a bit disturbing, but it's also, you know, I mean, I love him for it as well. But it's really interesting to, to know that the master-student relationship in this music can result in that kind of outcome. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm sure, sorry, not the master. I'm no master, but the teacher-student relationship, yeah. you know, so you can hear all the people who sound like Herbie Hancock on the, at the piano. There's millions of them. It's very common. Yeah. There, there's a whole generation now coming up who sound like Chick at the piano. I can hear it very clearly. You know, and they, they're from all over the world too. They're not just American players. Other people. And Chick's a big influence on them. Um. You know, Keith, elements of Keith Jarrett too, you can hear. Although Keith's a harder one to, to pull off because there's so many aspects to Keith Jarrett yeah. that I, I don't think there's anybody who's able to cover all of the aspects of Keith Jarrett. That's not possible. And I'm sure now that there are a generation coming up who, sound like Brad, who try to sound like Brad Milder because he's, he's such an incredible uh, influence. Yeah. Again, extraordinary, you know, ability beyond belief. Um that's nice. That's good. And uh, we are heading towards the end of this episode. So it's a, a ritual that I ask the same question to every guest, which is the dumbest question ever. Uh, what is your favorite solo that you transcribed? <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, I have to really think about that. I know it's... Uh, it's, it's it's stupid. It's like when you are asked, what's your favorite album, jazz album? You know, you can't <laughs> respond to that or your favorite pianist. But just, you know, for the game of it. For the game of it, I would say the one that I think about a lot, um, and I've already mentioned it in the course of this interview, but it's probably... I would say probably Bird of Paradise. Charlie Parker? Yeah. Yeah. Because it's so full of, there's a joy about it. You know, it's, it's, it's brilliant. It's virtuosic. Um, you know, it's full of great information. But if you just forget that for a moment and just listen to it for what it is. It is truly a bird of paradise. It is like a bird that just takes off with incredible plumage and flies and flies and flies and then lands. Uh, 
And that bird is having a great, great time up there. <laughs> and you just want to be in that place. Whatever it is that this person is doing, I want to be there. You know. Yeah. And thanks, Paul. Thanks for being part of the Jazz Transcription Clinic. It's been really a pleasure to have the opportunity to chat with you and to exchange some good thoughts on around you know jazz music. Well, it's great what you're doing, Mirko, and uh, I, I really hope that uh, students are, are watching this and learning from not just from me, but from all the wonderful people that you're talking to. Yeah, we are building up a good audience, I think, and hopefully, you know, yes. they can hear different voices because. Yeah. Another uh, aspect of this music is that it needs many, many different voices, many different cultures, you know, converted into one idea, which is to yeah. play some music. Yeah. And so thanks. Thanks again. And I hope to play with you soon, even though here in Melbourne at the moment we are in a bit difficult situation, but I hope it will happen soon. I certainly hope so too. I look forward to it very much, always. Thanks everyone. And uh, as usual, all the description and also references of the tracks that Paul mentioned will be in the podcast description. And stay in tune and hear you all on the next episode. Thank you. Thank you.